Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Clark. Oh, hello. And welcome to the program. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I'm very excited about tonight's show because, well, we're going to have some fun, some serious topics, too. Joining me in the studio, I've gotten to know him over the years, Chief Deputy Kevin Murphy with Montgomery County Sheriff's Department. Kevin, how are you this evening? Doing great, Joey. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thanks for being here. Um, it's a... Uh, been a weird experience for me i'll just come right out with it as a uh, libertarian talking about and learning about law enforcement uh because in the libertarian world get sites i'm sure i imagine you're aware of them sites like cop block and mm-hmm. and you know you see videos and i immediately uh, i can't assume i'm like well what happened 30 seconds before it might be in the wrong it might be in the right uh, and I've taken the approach, especially getting to know you over the years through Dan's show, like, no, let me put myself in an officer's shoes and really learn what it's like um, and how difficult the job is and, uh, well, how much you can also learn and help people with the job, too. And so I wanted to begin by asking, like, how would you, how did you get into this line of work, into law enforcement? Because I was just telling you off air, I don't think I have that type of constitution. I never had that desire to be in that line of work. But when did you realize I want to do this for a living? Well, when I was a kid and even as a teenager, I was always the one in the crowd that just couldn't stand a bully. And I couldn't stand people that took advantage of the weak. And, uh, you know, I stood up to the bullies and and have a few scars to show for it. (laughs) I didn't win very many fights. But uh, I guess it was just ingrained in my DNA, my character. You know, my mom and dad certainly had a lot to do with that. But, um, you know, when I graduated from high school and I went to college, uh, that was my goal. Uh, I just wanted to be a law enforcement officer. And I uh, spent two years in Ozark in the city that I grew up in and uh, graduated from high school. I was a police officer there for two years. And then I obviously moved to Montgomery and spent 28 years at the MPD and had a great career. Uh, I love the city. I love the people. I was very grateful for Sheriff Cunningham to give me the opportunity to be his chief deputy and continue serving the citizens here. You know, my children were born here. My grandchildren are, have all been born here. Yeah. Uh, this is my home, my community. And I care about it. I care about the people here. Uh, I have great relationships. Um, and I guess I'm still that kid, even at 54 years old, that just can't stand to see the strong take advantage of the weak. Yeah. I can't stand a thief. I can't stand anyone that would hurt or harm another human being. It just grates on me. So, you know, it's very interwoven into my character. Well, and for me, it's maybe I was being a bit misleading. I, I'm right there with you when you talk about when you see somebody taking advantage of somebody. I do have this visceral reaction. My worry, just talking about myself, is I couldn't do it in a proportional way. I couldn't. That's why I don't pick fights. I, I feel like I have this part of myself where I would black out and just go nuts. And 
There, there has to be something about being disciplined in the job, uh, knowing that we have to be by the book and enforce the laws. Uh, and but you get to be that uh, well, the person who protects. I see what you're saying. When I was 21 years old, a brand new police officer, the first couple of encounters that I had involving force that I had to handcuff somebody and they resisted. I can remember being angry, <laughs> and I can remember my lieutenant, P.A. Jones, saying, Kevin, uh, you can't get mad. You can't take it personal. And what was, you know, it's a developmental type of situation, just like in anything in life. Um, it takes time. You know, I spoke before a group of judges and attorneys not too long ago. It was within the last year. And... When I was conveying to the group, and there were some federal judges in there, state circuit court judges, a lot of really great attorneys, you know, when someone graduates from law school, they pass the bar, the old attorneys, the experienced attorneys teach the young lawyers the nuances of their profession. And the same thing rings true in law enforcement. And so, you know, my mentors were teaching me something that you can't learn in a classroom or reading a book or taking a test. It's, you know, the life experiences. And so, you know, some time went on, and I remember being in an encounter where this guy was outside of a bar and beating up the, his girlfriend and a bouncer. Mm. And then when, when I got there, he turned on me. And I can remember when the incident was over. I wasn't even breathing hard. I wasn't mad. I wasn't even upset. Because that was my job. And I think what we see sometimes on social media uh, is officers that maybe haven't achieved that uh, level of, uh, maybe professionalism is not the right word, achieve that level of control. Yeah. And, you know, again, we've seen officers that cross the line. Uh, We've seen officers that do exactly what they're supposed to. And, you know, it's very discerning sometimes to see that it's not a movie, it's not Hollywood, it's real. Uh, People have an aversion to violence. Um, You know, there's been books written on that, on killing, on combat. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, trying to think of his name, gosh, I've uh, read both of his books, but he talks about the aversion that human beings have to violence. Well, police officers aren't any different. Now, granted, there are people in the population that enjoy violence, and there's probably a very small percentage of law enforcement, too. We like to filter those guys out and get rid of them. But um, most people do not enjoy being in a combative situation. Now, in law enforcement, obviously, you're going to face it more often than the regular citizen because, you know, who are you going to call when, as I just spoke about a second ago, somebody who's drunk at a bar and wanting to fight? Right. You know, so, and I said this to a young man who was applying for a job at the sheriff's office recently uh, when the guy in Las Vegas was shooting into the crowd. And I asked him, well, who do you think was going to stop him? We are. Somebody has to stop the bullies, the violent people in this world. Absolutely. And um, I think it takes all types to make this world work. Um, I definitely am. I've been listening to a lot of this podcast called Hardcore History by a guy named Dan Carlin. He talks about 
on ancient battlefields. There are, at least from what we have and from texts and documents from that far ago, long ago, uh, that before they would actually start to clash, people would describe hearing the yeah. the chattering of teeth. That yes. They knew they had to do it, but yeah, some folks, I just, I get nervous, and I'm very uh, violence-averse and risk-averse. Um, but I have come because of that to respect folks like yourself and and so many law enforcement officers because it is an incredibly difficult job and some ways i think it needs there needs to be more pay um maybe even it needs to be up there in my mind with a doctor or with somebody who has the accolades and i think there is a lot of respect out there in the world but uh i wanted to Really pick your brain on, it's a 30-year career, really, over three decades. Mm -hmm. What would you say is the biggest change you've seen since the time you were being taught by those mentors you were mentioning to today? Has there been a major change? And it it could be something in terms of tactics. It could be something in terms of the culture, how people are trained. But what comes to mind when I say, what's the biggest change in 30 years? It's a great question, and without a doubt, uh, the way that social media drives our profession. Uh, how it drives opinion and public perception. There's not a law enforcement agency in this country that, in my opinion, would be effective if they're not utilizing social media to a high degree. And, you know, that's something that Sheriff Cunningham is very focused on with uh, we have our own app and we send out citizen alerts. Uh, we, we embrace social media. And I just don't see how an agency, federal, state, or local, could really survive in today's day of great technology or communication without it. Um, And, you know, law enforcement is like a pendulum. And in our society, uh, even like dealing with juvenile justice and then uh, criminal justice in general, you know, years ago, I would say probably in the first portion of my career, there was a tendency for society to get tough on juvenile offenders. And we were arresting 15-year-olds for a capital offense, a capital murder. And those young offenders were being tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. And then you spring forward, 15, 20 years later, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that to convict and sentence a juvenile to death was cruel and unusual punishment. So some of these young young men, teenagers, that I actually dealt with when I was an investigator were brought back into a courtroom and given another sentencing hearing. And so this individual, who by this time was probably about 25 or close to 30 years old, was now being sentenced to life in prison. Well, then you go forward another five or ten years, and these same individuals, who are now 35 or 40 years old, are being... I'm, excuse me, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. The Supreme Court then ruled that to sentence a juvenile to life in prison without possibility of parole was also cruel and unusual punishment. So here recently, in the last few years, I've actually gone into a courtroom, and I mean, I, when I saw these men, I thought, wow, you're just a kid when I arrested you or we you're a man now I mean 30 something years old almost 40 years old and they were actually sentenced and there's a possibility that these young 15 year olds at the time of the crime will one day see the outside of prison so I mean there's been a lot of changes 
Um, there's been a lot of changes internally, procedurally, but then certainly with the courts. That's a good example of a, a huge paradigm shift. You know, it was a get tough on crime, charge juveniles as adults paradigm back in the 80s and the mid-90s. Yeah. But now in the mid-20-teens, we're seeing a huge shift. No, they, they deserve to one day get out of prison. That sentencing is harsh. So it's a good example of, you know, that pendulum yeah. that swings back and forth. Well, and it, um, it has to be bizarre because, I mean, I've heard stories like we were talking off air, like some of the news stories you read about young kids, I mean, just shooting people in cold blood, just doing things that I never would have thought of at 15. But it, I imagine it does have to be bizarre. I heard in your voice that, like, we have to arrest this 15-year-old. I mean, what they did was wrong. They have to be arrested. But it, it, does that side of you come out of, like, man, why... It, it's almost hard to fathom, I'd imagine, at some point. It's like, when you have to, you have to. But it's, how did this person that I'm arresting get to this point? Yeah, um, most of them, and nearly all of them, I would say, a great majority, really live on the streets. They have no guidance. They have no one to look up to. You know, they seek somebody as a role model, and often that role model is the wrong person. Uh, they get involved in gangs, and violence becomes uh, ways, or it's a means to an end to them. And, you know, there's a certain nihilism that's created in their minds. They don't, and again, I've talked to many of these kids, they just don't see themselves past the age of 25. So they live fast, and they live hard, and, you know, they live for the moment. And it's, it's very, it's sobering, because, you know, I've, I've seen some of these kids that get in trouble, and at the time, of course, my children are all grown now, but at the time, you know, I had children at home that were their age. They were very young. It's disheartening. Well, and I was talking last night of my friend Dan Sanchez. I heard this uh, show. Yeah, about the, especially Joseph Campbell, and there's this one uh, clip with Bill Moyers, the documentary Joseph Campbell did on mythology, especially initiation. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how uh, this one tribe in New Guinea, a primitive tribe, they teach a kid from a young age to be scared of these masks that they or say are the gods or the forces or authorities in society. And then when the kid comes of age, a bit unruly, really feeling their oats growing up, uh, the men in the tribe will take the kid from the mother and sort of wearing these masks intimidate him and then have the kid fight one of the men in the mask and it's got to be an incredibly scary experience for the young person, but the man lets the kid win. And when after the kid wins, he takes off the mask and he puts it on the boy. And it's sort of just this initiation ritual, and there are all sorts of different ways people get initiated. But if you are living in, say, a home that is very wishy-washy, it's always changing, there is no unit that you feel a part of or initiated into, I can imagine somebody would get... Uh, initiate into something that would be nihilistic, that mm -hmm. uh, would be incredibly violent and in the whim of the moment. And I, I'm baffled by it because, I, I don't know if you've heard me tell these stories on air, but I've been held at gunpoint twice in my life. Both oh. times by officers. I've heard. I've heard you speak of at least one. Uh, the second time, it was a normal Sunday at Auburn. I'm in my apartment 
And I'm like, I need to clean up. I'm such a pig. And so I, I start cleaning up everything. I have two trash bags. I open up my door and take a step down uh, our little stoop to the front door. And I turn to my right, and there's an officer, a SWAT officer, with his gun at ready. And I immediately, like, drop the trash bags and go, uh, sorry? And then a blue clothes officer comes around the corner and says, come here, son. Mm-hmm. And I sit down, and he just tells me to shut up. And after 10 minutes, I'm like, Psst. Hey, yeah. what's going on? <laughs> right. And he finds that there's a, a you know somebody called in that some guy's holding his girlfriend hostage in one of the apartments. You know, like, can I go back inside? He's like, yeah. Then they made me leave a few hours later because they were going to do something. It ended up there was nobody in the apartment. It was a, a false column. But the set of the first time, um, and this had to be oh six, oh seven, um, maybe oh five. And I'm, I'm not sure what your rank was at that time in MPD, mm-hmm. but we're over near Highland Avenue. It's an old business uh, that was still in the name of one of my friend's dad's old air conditioning place. And we were making these silly movies, like a cops and robbers movie. And so we're playing around with airsoft guns and all these things like that. And uh, one of the guys in with says, oh, uh, Black and white just pulled up. We should probably see what they want. So we kind of put stuff up, cameras away, and we're leaning on the car. And I hear this coming around the corner because there's gravel. Crunch, crunch, crunch. We're like, okay. They're moving very deliberately and very slow. And around the corner, three officers with guns trained on us. But here is the reaction. Uh, And it's hard for folks out there listening and radio. They do this exactly. They, They pull up and they go, what the? And they come back up and they're talking and my friend's like, my dad says we could be here. It's my dad's place. We're just right. making a movie. Then another officer comes hauling butt from around the corner. Everybody yelled, get on the ground, get on the ground. And it ended up everything was fine. Mm-hmm. But it, to me, it is such a sobering moment and it is a moment where you immediately go, yes, I'm listening. I respect what you're telling me. Here's what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I'm shocked when I see some of these videos that go viral online, how people speak to officers. Yes. And it might be one thing if somebody's drunk, but Very, just out of self-preservation, right. you should Very be provocative. Um, and I hear this from time to time when somebody like yourself encounters someone in law enforcement and are, you know, why are you pointing a gun at me? which is absolutely the last alternative in any situation. But J.R. Ward, Anderson Gordon, and Keith Houts were all Montgomery police officers that were shot and killed in the line of duty. They were ambushed. None of these three officers ever saw it coming. They were attacked so quickly... And so deliberately, they, they didn't stand a chance. And so, an abundance of caution walking into the unknown, because none of those three officers had any idea they were about to die. None of them had their weapons drawn, not one of them. You know, uh, there are millions of encounters every day with citizens and law enforcement officers that are, uh, you know, inconsequential. There's, there's nothing to it. There is such a minute, small percentage, one-tenth of one percent, and even smaller, maybe one-thousandth of a percent. is so where, you know, there's violence, there's a weapon drawn. It's very rare. But, well, like someone like yourself, you're certainly never going to forget that. Oh, no. Ever. 
You know, I, when I was a young motor officer, uh, my my job was to ride a motorcycle and issue citations for traffic violations. And my lieutenant at the time, John McClenney, is a great man. Uh, I loved him like a father. He would tell us, you don't have to write everyone a ticket. Give warnings. And I did. Well, not of the people that I wrote tickets to. They may be sore, but I did give my share of warnings as well to citizens. Move forward six or seven years. I'm an investigator, a detective at the city, and this lady was the victim of a theft. This person had stolen her purse and used her credit cards. And she was looking at me. She said, you don't remember me, do you? I said, I'm sorry, I don't. And she said, well, in 1987, you pulled me over on Madison Avenue, and, and you gave me a warning. I said, well, I'm glad that you know the encounter went uh, your way. And it occurred to me, there was no way I could remember the thousands of people that I encountered in my job, certainly the hundreds that I stopped as a motor officer, but they never forgot me. <laughs> as you just conveyed to your audience, you'll never forget those encounters. But the officer in Auburn, you know, realized quickly that you weren't a threat. All right. The officers in Montgomery quickly realized that it was a you know false alert or false call. Um, I think one of the biggest issues that a law enforcement officer should concentrate on is when you have a, a negative encounter with a citizen, you have to talk them down. I'm sorry. Hey, Mr. Clark, we got a call. I didn't know. Right. We thought y'all were breaking into this place. But I think where some law enforcement officers fail is they don't explain. They don't talk the citizen through or down to rationalize this is why you saw what you saw and this is why I did what I did you know you just can't get back in the car and leave and leave them wondering what you, and I've seen that where someone would call and say hey I was treated this way and no explanation was given and you know you would talk with the deputy or talk with the officer and say look you owe them an explanation and it's better for you to spend about five minutes talking to them than us spending 15 minutes or an hour trying to de-escalate or, or explain this situation. Five minutes of an investment in your part is going to save us 30 minutes tomorrow. It's, uh, it's, it's powerful. Well, and it's um, difficult for me when people only see a badge, people only see a uniform. And you have to realize these are, these are everybody's people. Sure. I mean, uh, I would expect officers with more training than the citizen but uh, the real question that has been, uh, I think, does a injustice to the conversation that's out there and is the nationalizing of the conversation. And what I mean by that is, of course, there are Supreme Court precedents and cases, as you just laid out earlier. But New York City is not Chicago. Montgomery, Alabama is not Ferguson or St. Louis. Like, mm -hmm. Albuquerque is different than Los Angeles. I mean, they're... Each little community is very different. It might call for different types of policing. It will definitely call for people building relationships on the ground. When you see some of these stories that go nationwide, uh, do you feel like sometimes everybody gets lumped in? They get too, uh, for lack of a better word, tribal, that we're going to stick by our side, our narrative, and we're not going to look at the nuance and the true communities and the people coming together. Uh, because I have not in my experience in Montgomery, experience what I might hear somebody talk about in another part of the country. I think your statement is very accurate. When I would travel, 
when I was police chief and now as chief deputy and Sheriff Cunningham and I would travel or when we, when we do travel I remember being in Chicago one time and I saw Hugh McCall I was police chief at the city Hugh was the colonel at the troopers and I said something to Hugh about the disconnect or the reaction that I saw when you would be in a room with fellow law enforcement executives and I'd say hey I'm Kevin Murphy hey Kevin where, where are you from I'm from Montgomery oh you're from there hmm. Hugh we were waiting for the bus to take us back to the hotel and I was conveying the not it wasn't everywhere but there was a level of negativity attached to the south and to Montgomery and here Hugh McCall an African American director of public safety he's the colonel of the troopers he looked at me and said Kevin I've been asked do you still beat the people coming across the bridge well there's a there's a level of uh, bias there that people carry uh throughout their lives and i think that the sometimes maybe the media perpetuates some of it um you know i'm seeing it right now on the national state level with the current political environment which is not good but law enforcement carries a brand and when i was in a class in chicago they were teaching a civil rights class and the person that was teaching it was from oakland California. There's the police chief there. And after the class, I walked up to him and said, hey, I'd like to be a part of this conversation. There's, I mean, we're ground zero for civil rights in wow. Montgomery. Oh, yeah. And again, he, he taught the class well, and he had a great perspective on civil rights, because civil rights is really an issue anywhere in the country. Oh, absolutely. It, everyone can contribute to that story. But um, I think that we do get tribal. I, I, I think you're spot on with your... Uh, your uh, view of it because you know it it's difficult sometimes to judge if you don't live in Ferguson or right. you don't live in Chicago or New York or, or or Montgomery people's opinions are so formed by what they see in the news but unfortunately social media can brand a community in such a way that people believe it and it's not necessarily you – know, I've had people come to Montgomery and say, wow, this place is nothing like what I was told. Right. People here are friendly. The races get along. You know, sure, we have problems. Every community does. But they were pleasantly surprised at how warm and, and what a great community this is. Well, and I'm also thinking of something – I guess it was David Brown, the Dallas police – Chief, good uh, man. Yeah, uh, he said after that tragedy with the sniper um, that we're asking the police to do too much. Yes, and I I see what he meant literally, and we need more funding for mental health, for good schools, these sort of things, which I agree with. But I also took it in another way. I think it was just me. Is that I think when the rule of law gets stretched with so many laws, and I mean stuff maybe officers on the ground aren't called to enforce it might be like the doj brings a case against you but when there are so many laws that can be selectively enforced it starts to i think tear at the rule of law it does 
And unfortunately, I think it's the, the face of the law of law enforcement that often carries the brunt and the blame when it's the politicians and their crisp white collars up there passing laws that, and sometimes, especially, no offense to my progressive friends on the left, it's almost this mentality like, oh, laws are like a social, it's like a homeowner's association, it's like a social club. And we have our little laws, but they forget that law, at the end of the day, is enforced. Sure. And you have to be very careful in what you pass and what you commission people to do. Well, quality of life laws, uh, a car driving down the street with the music blaring, boom, boom, boom. Uh, there's been some legislators that want to pass a law against saggy pants. Or you've got a 15-year-old who's smoking a cigarette. And I understand that. And I'm not trying to take a jab at any lawmaker. I understand that they're trying to improve a quality of life in their communities. But here's where it starts to become somewhat of a quagmire because if you're out here enforcing those laws and you get home and your house has been broken into or your car has been stolen, I don't think you're going to be really worked up about a 15-year-old who was smoking cigarettes. or So, again, I mean, it's a trade-off. You have to list your priorities. You know, I think sometimes we can have too many laws on the books to the point where, you know, it's just impossible to enforce them all. Or you know, pick and choose the ones that you uh, think are the most important. And to, to know all the laws. I mean, there's, what's the book, like three felonies a day in terms of federal statutes. There's a, a professor who came out, uh, who studies the law and law enforcement saying that people without even knowing it, if you mm-hmm. enforce to the letter of the law everything on the books in the U.S. Code, people commit three felonies a day. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, and, and really, Joey, you're very uh, attuned to that's the direction our society is going right now. Uh, UCR, Uniform Crime Report, used to list part one crimes. There were about eight or ten. You know, murder, larceny, theft, rape, kidnapping. Incident-based recording, uh, reporting now, IBR, part one crime, or uh, it's actually an A category, 24. So again, I mean, it's uh, the, the, we are starting to deal with more uh, with the same resources we had yesterday. And it's, it's proven very challenging to law enforcement agencies all over the country. And, you know, uh, there's only so far your resources will go. You know, a dollar still a dollar. Uh, ten deputies can only cover so much before they just can't cover anymore. Absolutely. So it's a management issue. Oh, yeah, and it's, uh, it's a lot, especially when you've got a sprawling city like Montgomery, and I can't imagine Los Angeles. I can't even imagine living there, uh, which is uh, where... A, a, an interesting story comes from after the Watts riots. Isn't that after after the Watts riots, it's when the, the SWAT concept it starts did. to come in? It sure did. And it, it's grown over the year In terms of use of a SWAT unit, it has grown over the last few decades, I believe. You know, and I think uh, a few years ago, the police and the law enforcement community took a pretty tough hit because they looked at us as a militaristic uh, type of agency and you know the 1033 program got revoked and a lot of this military equipment was seized or you know we had, 
uh, law enforcement agencies had to return these vehicles and weapons and you know that was kind of perpetuated by Ferguson but you know, there's one thing that I remember Sheriff Cunningham and I were talking about it at the time you know it's it's not necessarily that you possess it it's how you use it and you have to be diligent and responsible with that I understand that the SWAT mentality can get out of control mm. and it has to be managed, it has to be mitigated, or it will get out of control. And dealing with a SWAT team is really no different than dealing with a young officer. You you just can't do whatever you want. And you know, our SWAT team is very responsible, but they don't engage and they don't do unless the sheriff or I and I'm under the sheriff's supervision yes give them the green light and i ask lots of questions and i can tell you the last time i dealt with the situation where the swat team was outside of a house i told them all we're going to wait this out there's no need for us to rush in there we are going to wait and that's a good thing oh I, if you want to you yeah. want to avoid uh that type of of action and force it at all costs if you have to use it then you're going to have to but if you don't, then there's no way you're going to ha- uh, use it. Well, we've been sitting here talking for 35 minutes, and wow. we got to hit a quick break here. Okay. Um, but there was something you said when you left MPD that it isn't a battlefield. I don't remember the exact words, but these are our customers. Sure. Our yeah. fellow citizens. Yes, it is. And I, I love that mentality. Um, that's... I think even the reformers, like Radley Balco, he wrote a book called The Rise of the Warrior Cop or something like that. Um, I'd love to get your your take on that when we come back. But uh, he very much talks in those terms, that it has to be the customer, uh, citizen to citizen. Um, And again, it's difficult to have these discussions sometimes because you're talking about a place, in many of these instances of abuse, it has nothing to do with our local community. Mm-hmm. It's like, why will we brand it? It's just a, a possible concern. But when we come back from this break, uh, I also want to talk about some of the fun parts of the job. Because okay, the, sure. the uniform you're wearing um, reminds me of happy memories, often when I see a sheriff mm-hmm. or a sheriff deputy. So, yeah. um, again, folks, uh, Chief Deputy Kevin Murphy from the Montgomery County Sheriff's Department is my guest this evening. We'll be right back after this quick break. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. My guest this evening is Chief Deputy Kevin Murphy from Montgomery County Sheriff's Department. Now, when I think of a sheriff, like, I used to work at Fun Zone before it was taken out by a tornado. (laughs) And I remember it might have been Cunningham, Sheriff Cunningham himself, um, but we always had sheriffs there kind of providing a little security, but they were always Mm -hmm. having fun, hanging out with the kids, I mean, keeping their eye out, but... It was always a welcoming environment, and I imagine in your capacity, you get a lot of opportunities to really get out and meet the community and uh, get to know people, help people in little Mm. ways, big ways. What are some of your fondest memories when you look back on your career of people you've been able to help? And those type of events, you know, cops, uh, kids, and cops, um, 
uh, again, the sheriff is is really rich in the community outreach area. Uh, we're having a toy drive this Saturday at Walmart on Ann Street, uh, and then we go to the nursing homes uh, at Christmas time and spend time with the elderly, and then we go to the shelters and provide children with toys and. And really, you know, you turn around at the first of the year, and we're getting re- ready for Deputy Dave Day uh, in Raymer, um, where we have, you know, they, we give out bicycles and prizes and cookout and Easter egg hunt. Uh, there's a one-week camp, uh, camp show and tell. You know, I think if that's – he's done a lot of great things. Uh, you know, the previous sheriff, D.T. Marshall, really just kind of let – at the time, Chief Cunningham, now Sheriff Cunningham, developed these programs. And sometimes uh, people will say things to me out in public about DT taught uh, Derek everything he knows. I said, well, he taught him a lot. He taught us both a lot. But I'm telling you, Sheriff Cunningham is really the power behind the throne there. (laughs) Uh, He's just really got a lot of dynamic ideas. Those things are important. And those are the fun times because people get to see you as just Kevin, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, when I'm out in public, I go to a restaurant, uh, I'm at a store, whether I'm wearing this uniform or not, uh, I hear so many positive things. And I always, I mean, people in this city, in this county are kind for the most part. And that's, that's a reward to me, Yeah, you know. And I often go back to the office and tell Sheriff Cunningham, you know, this citizen asked about you today or this citizen complimented the sheriff's office. And I look at him and tell him, you know, if it's bad, I'm going to tell you that too. But again, I just hear so many positive things. Um, but we're, you know, very focused on if somebody calls and complains, most of the time we can work something out and understanding. Yeah. You know, every once in a while you're going to have an unhappy person and nothing you say or do is going to resolve the situation. But, uh, you know, I, I in my 33rd year, I truly love this job. Um, I, I love this community and I really don't even feel like it's work to me. Uh, I enjoy the challenge, uh, the camaraderie of law enforcement, the people I work with. Uh, they're my brothers and sisters. You know, you see a lot of ups and downs in this profession, and you know, you've seen. I've seen some horrible things. I've seen yeah. children die, and it's 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 just horrible. But then, I remember one time this lady was having a baby, and my uh, we were all standing, just please wait. The medics are going to be in a second, <laughs> you know. And oh my God, it's coming! And Don't push. That baby was born whether we wanted it to be or not. <laughs> and when the medics got there. Uh, they said something about, wow, y'all delivered a baby. And the lady reared up and said, they didn't do anything. <laughs> I said, she's right. I was scared to death. But, you know, again, it was a beautiful thing to see a child. I mean, I was in the room when my son was born. But to see a child come into the world and it was healthy and vibrant. And uh, they got mama and the newborn to the hospital. Uh, but I believe me, I'm not taking credit for the delivery of that baby. Because <laughs> it, it was a... Uh, it was a... Uh, Quite an event, let's just say that. <laughs> well, and I'm sitting here realizing that uh, we've got only about like nine minutes left, and we need another hour. 
Uh, because, you know, one of the things that frustrates me, and we don't have to go into this in depth, is uh, I think on the part of the community, sometimes the pre-crime mindsets, like if something goes wrong, like murders, for instance, it's usually people who know each other. It's either domestic or maybe drug-related, and it's like, okay, how are you going to prevent every little thing that goes wrong? Is that really uh, the job of the police? But I... I don't know. That's one mindset I think that's out there where nothing bad should ever go wrong. I get the sentiment, but I also have, I don't know, I've read my history. Uh, I've studied this a lot. Uh, obviously, when I got my degree, both my bachelor's and my master's, criminology, and I've heard the term victimology used quite a bit in the news of late. Everything in criminology is theory-based. Uh, criminology is not an exact science. Mm. It's not mathematics. It's not chemistry. And if you look at all the criminologists throughout history, one of the most influential ones in our culture, our society, is Caesar Baccaria, an Italian criminologist. The founding fathers, when they are developing the Constitution, the Bill of Rights really relied heavily on Bakaria's influence, his ideas. And, you know, he was a, a he did not believe in the death penalty. Hmm. And he also spoke of crime and punishment of, you know, torture was just an, an abhorrent practice. And he grew up in the 1700s where he lived in the 1700s. He died in 1794. Um, but he had a tremendous influence on really the United States, the culture, our constitution, our, our laws. And then the criminologists that followed, you know, there's so many theories out there what causes crime. You know, is it your environment? Is it genetic? Is it um, poverty-driven? I mean, there's as many theories out there as you could. We could probably sit here until midnight right. talking about them. And I, I think what people are looking for when it comes to homicide you know, and I understand that because I ask the same. We all want an answer. Oh, yeah. Why? Why? Would, what would drive someone? Because here recently in Millbrook, there was a murder over a video game. A $100 bet over a video game. And I think we as a society, as people, we try to rationalize that. And it, I, I don't think you can. I agree. And so, you know, it's very frustrating, you know, because when the term victimology is used, there's a, I think there's an ideal that people think that, that people in criminology and, and in social science, that we're trying to blame the victim. And that's furthest from the truth, that right. no one's blaming the victim. Now, sometimes people put themselves in bad situations and they make poor choices. But that's not saying that they're wrong or that they're the reason why they were killed. But there are practices and tendencies that some people, you know, do you sell or use drugs? Do you carry an illegal firearm? Are you engaged in criminal activity? You know, do uh, you have your homeless? There, there are so many factors that you really have the recipe for a perfect storm when someone is killed. Yes. It's not one thing, it's not two, it's probably ten things that led to that moment. It's very complicated, uh, and as I said just a moment ago, you know, everything in criminology, victimology is theory-based. There's no concrete knowns, there's no concrete solution. Um, 
you know, there's a uh, social psychologist named Elliot Aronson. He wrote a book called The Human uh, Animal. Excuse me. The Social Animal. Okay. Pardon me. The Social Animal. It's in its, like, ninth printing, ninth edition. And it talks about human nature, and it talks about tendencies and influence, not just to uh, to all of us. And, I mean, it's a great book. I've read it twice. And, you know, I refer back to it sometimes when I see things in in my profession of what caused a person to perpetuate a crime or what led a person to be the victim of a crime. And, I mean, I'm not talking about somebody's house is broken into. Right. I'm talking about somebody who was killed at a drug house and you know they're living hard and fast and just like the people we were talking about earlier that young 15 year old who just seems to not care they're they're running so fast that they don't even know where they're going and so it's you know to me it's a very interesting subject uh I, i still read a lot about it um because i'm like you joey and a lot of our listeners sometimes you just kind of wonder oh why did this person take this other person's life over a bet on a video game? I don't think they know. Exactly. I, I think it, evil can come out of ignorance or boredom and come out of rage, a, a true emotional response to things. Now, I want to close out, and we really are so limited on time, and I hate it. Uh, I start off the show talking about the seven key virtues, and I always get in trouble when I start listing, but prudence and temperance and a sense mm-hmm. of justice, faith, hope, and love. What I think I need to work on the most is probably courage. Um, I think courage can come from a lot of places, but I'd imagine it's also uh, having pride in um, in how you present yourself. Like, you walk in, your uniform is immaculate. And it's taking responsibility and being the person that you want to be. Is there something about, you know, some little things people can do, like myself, to maybe foster the virtue of, of courage or more discipline in their lives? You know, I told my grandson, Camden, recently, we were having a discussion about a bully at school. And I said, courage is not the absence of fear. And I said, Poppy, he calls me Poppy. <laughs> Poppy's been afraid in in my job, and there's been situations where I was afraid, but like my mentors taught me to overcome that fear. Uh, Dr. Jeff Gwen, he's a PhD. He's a very good friend of mine, one of my instructors in graduate school. Where again, it's a long process, and so we've kind of put it on the back burner. But we've trying to develop a class for law enforcement officers on fear management. Because no one ever taught me that. And if we can teach these young officers to manage their fear, then I think we can we can mitigate and reduce some of these bad encounters. But to answer your question, you know, I think that there are examples of courage to just the everyday person. I don't know if you saw the video. This guy attacked this woman on a New York subway. Hmm. And it was just in the last two weeks. And this citizen walked up and intervened. And, you know, again, he just, he did the right thing. And quite frankly, I think he was probably in some danger for a moment. But he was able to talk the guy down. He assaulted this woman Mm. who I think had asked if she could sit down or something. It was really not provoked at all. But, um, 
I think to the average citizen, they would be surprised to know just how courageous, including you, you really are. When, I mean, how many moments of truth will you really find in a lifetime? True. It's forced on a law enforcement officer. <laughs> You're going to be forced into it. But I've seen people in this community, you know, to me, courage is, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell what I saw. I'm going to be a witness. We need to do the right thing. That might not appear to be too brave to some people, but it's very brave to me. Because, you know, so many people these days don't stick around. They don't give a statement. They don't, you know, there's a saying, snitches get stitches. Sure. Well, I'm willing to get as many stitches as I need to in order to make sure justice is served. Absolutely. Well, Kevin Chief, thank you. For Kevin, I'm Kevin. Call me Kevin. Oh, thank you so much for being here tonight. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I'd love to have you back because, again, Please I, did. there's so much. Uh, that we could discuss. Well, I love um, your show. Well, thank you. Thank you. And uh, I just want your listeners to know this guy is Mensa smart. Oh. Sometimes I have to look stuff up that you talk about. Oh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, again, I appreciate being here and uh, look forward to future conversations. Thanks for having me. Right.